You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. So today I'm, I'm uh, very pleased to introduce uh, Sergei Plochy, who is Mikhailo S. Khrushchevsky, Professor of Ukrainian History at Harvard, uh, and also Director of the Ukrainian Research Institute. And uh, his research interests include intellectual, cultural history, also international history of Eastern Europe. Uh, he's a leading authority on the region, and he's published extensively in English, Ukrainian, and Russian. Um, to list several of his influential monographs, they would include The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, uh, The Lost Kingdom, Quest for Empire, and the Making of the Russian Nation. And his newest book, Chernobyl, The History of a Nuclear Catastrophe, will be released by Basic Books in May of this year. So it's, it's um, um, probably in press right now as we speak. Uh, uh, and so today his talk is entitled Nuclear Power and the Arrogance of Man. Revisiting the Chernobyl disaster. So please welcome Professor Plok. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for the introduction. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. For me, in many ways, it's like homecoming. I, I, I lived in Canada for a while. <laughs> and in case you feel bad about your weather, please don't feel bad, because actually it's warmer than it is in Boston today here. So that's, that's perfect. Uh, again, uh, th there was, for, for me, there was no much of a change there. Uh, as it was just mentioned, the uh, book on, on Chernobyl uh, will be published in May. They emailed me, I, I read it today already in, in medicine, that the, the author's copies are supposed to arrive on Monday. So I didn't see them yet, but I'm, I'm looking certainly forward. So this is, will be a first my book talk before the book is actually out there, before the book has been published. And I will start with, uh, with uh, uh, covers that they sent me. Again, I didn't see the real book yet. So the one is on the left, this is the, the US. And on the right, this is uh, UK. And you see that the very different takes on, 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 on the, uh, on the um, uh, catastrophe is in black and green, and tragedy somehow is in white. But I, I, I want to tell you that actually the text is, is, is exactly the same, so the, the, there, is, there is no difference there. Well, uh, the book is, is about, uh, of course, the, the accident that took place uh, on the, um, early in the early, earning, early morning hours of April 26, 1986. And to give you some idea about what happened there was that as a result of the test on the reactor unit number four that went wrong, explosion took place, two explosions in fact. There still, uh, scientists are arguing what happened there. Uh, the recent information was that it's not what they thought it was. The, the explosion number one, that what they believed was explosion number one, the, the um, um, steam explosion, uh, now they're thinking that that was number two. They discovered some, uh, some um, fallout from Chernobyl in Russia and given the distance where it is 
they're now rethinking what, what happened there, which is quite scary that it's more than 30 years after the accident, we still don't know exactly the sequence of events and what happened there. And that was very much the story when uh, this, for example, photograph was taken. The scientists were in, completely in uh, at loss trying to figure out, trying different, different strategies of how to deal with the reactor and didn't know what, what to do. It eventually, the, 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 the there was no explosion more than that original two. People were afraid of that. That didn't happen. But again, there was no explanation why, why the, the reactor eventually stopped. Explo uh, the, the new explosions didn't take place. Still, with those two, 50 million curies of radiation were released. And this is just to give you an idea. This is 500 Hiroshima-type bombs in terms of the, of the amount of the radiation. And it took only 5% of the fuel that was in the reactor to get, to get out of the, of the confinement. So 5% of fuel that is in the reactor, and there were four reactors, created the, the fallout that amounts to the, to the, uh, in Korea, uh, the uh, fallout out of Hiroshima bomb. Um, I lived in Ukraine at that time, so approximately 500 kilometers down, down Dnieper River. And uh, for me, this book is in many ways kind of a return to those, to, to those days when I was a young professor at the, at the University of, of Dnipropetrovsk, trying also so kind of a personal journey, trying to, to figure out what, what happened there. Uh, but the, the, the decision to write, to write the book really came to me when I was uh, on the uh, tour. Now you can actually go on a tour to Chernobyl. They can bring you there. And uh, um, uh, that's, that's when I, I, I thought that uh, um, we had a very, very lovely, very well-prepared guide, uh, a local uh, Ukrainian guide, probably a woman, maybe somewhere 25, 30 years old. And she was really knew a lot. But what I realized that actually she didn't know also some basic things in terms of the context. And I thought, OK, for someone who lived through that, maybe I'm qualified to, to, to do that, to do that not just for my own sake, but for the sake of, of, the, of the broader readership. Uh, one thing that is interesting about the exclusion zone and it includes today the city of Chernobyl, after which the power station was called, and the city of Pripyat, that's the biggest city, that's where the uh, people who constructed the, the plant lived and also the operators. So um, in 2015, Ukrainian parliament passed a number of laws on the so-called decommunization. So the idea was that the monuments to Lenin that were still standing in the republic were to be removed. The streets and squares named after Lenin, Zerzhinsky, other major figures of the, of the Soviet uh, regime were supposed to be renamed. So there were, broadly speaking, two areas in Ukraine where that didn't happen. So one of the areas is, of course, the Crimea that was annexed and the Donbass that is basically in the, middle, in the middle of the conflict. So that's one. And another was the Chernobyl zone. So there you can still see monuments to Lenin. You can see the, the, the names uh, of the streets. 
you, you can see the, the Soviet symbols. So that, that became really a time capsule. It's, it's, it's kind of a Pompeii that, that was, was covered by radiation, and you can go there and revisit on a certain level the, the, the Soviet Union, how, how it was, ex except that it is, it is without, without people there. And uh, that's, that's where I, I want to start uh, really uh, today's presentation, saying that there is, a, there is a, um, this um, maybe one possibility to look at what happened at Chernobyl by blaming that on the communist system. Okay, there was communist, it, it came with all sorts of negative things, Communist is gone, so we are today pretty safe because the, the, the reactor that was in operation, it's, it doesn't, uh, they don't employ that anymore. The Chernobyl was closed in the year, the entire power station in the year 2000. So we, are, we turned the page and we are in new, in new world. And that's basically where I, I uh, make my argument that this is not exactly the case. The communism maybe explains some parts of the tragedy, but there are much more things that were at play which are still important, are still important today. Well, um, first of all, the, the, the nuclear, nuclear uh, power uh, as such goes through a very interesting period. There are today, I don't know whether you know that or not, 61, nuclear reactors here in this country. And you can judge by the map, only maybe in, in Europe, in the European Union, there are more, and mostly most of those would be, would be uh, in France. Well, uh, if you think that they are safe, you, you're right, that they, they are safe, but uh, there is just a, <laughs> a, sobering, a sobering information that I uh, found when I was getting ready for this talk, in the last two years there were 700 complaints with the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission coming from people working at those plants. And the way how those, those complaints were dealt with, basically uh, th those who filed complaints, they really were unhappy. They, they, they believed that they were ignored. So the, the, issues, the issues are there, like with any, any major, major uh, uh, enterprise, uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, minor accidents occur, but they're, they're minor. So overall, I think, again, that, 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 that we are fine, we are pretty okay today. What is, however, interesting is that like with many other things, the, the nuclear power, it doesn't belong anymore to the first world. It doesn't belong anymore to the United States. It doesn't belong anymore to what used to be the Soviet Union. The two countries that first acquired nuclear weapons then started this Atoms for Peace program that acquired in a hard way expertise and some idea about safety. So today there are only five nuclear reactors that under, are under construction in this country. The uh, major company involved in, in, in building nuclear power plants, uh, Westinghouse, they filed for bankruptcy last year. 
Um, this year, um, on the on the second on the second of April, one more company that in, is involved in nuclear energy filed for bankruptcy as well. The, the nuclear world is moving outside of United States and and uh, um, Western Europe. There are 21 new reactors under construction in China, as, as we speak. Nine in Russia, six in India, four in the United Arab Emirates, two in Pakistan. Um, I mentioned only five new reactors under construction in the United States, none in Britain. Germany decided to go nuclear free. On the other hand, Middle East is basically another frontier, new frontier for nuclear. Uh, two reactors are now under construction in Egypt, volatile part of, of, of the world. Well, what we learned uh, with the investigation into, into um, uh, Trump's White House is that the um, plan was in the works to uh, for American and Russian nuclear companies come together and um, start building nuclear reactors in the in the Middle East. The plan was also designed in the way that uh, the um, uh, one of the Ukrainian companies would get part of the contract altogether, it seems to me, over 60 billion. To be part of that, which would also uh, uh, lead to the uh, lifting of sanctions from uh, uh, that, that we have today in Russia. So again, uh, it, didn't, it didn't go through for a number of reasons, partly because of the Russia investigation. But the, the Middle East with Egypt, they're already constructing that and, and other countries are in the play and, and there are companies in the US and in Russia who are prepared to do that. So what that, why I'm saying all of that is basically to stress that the things that we see in Chernobyl in 1986 that eventually lead to this, to this uh, accident uh, that were underlining factors in that. They are present or can be present today as the nuclear power is moving to the countries with authoritarian regimes. The countries that try to get nuclear power not for the sake of nuclear power but as a backdoor to get nuclear weapons. The countries that have authoritarian political systems like the Soviet Union had in 1986 the countries that are very much concerned about the economic growth no matter, war, uh, no matter what and are not concerned about ecological consequences. The countries that actually, as a result of a major technological disaster, the regimes can collapse altogether. And it will be at the end the responsibility of the international community, like it happened with Chernobyl to deal with the, with the mess, to deal with the consequences. And I will, I will talk about that. So most of my talk will be focused on issues like relationship between military and, and, and peaceful uses of nuclear power and how it contributed to what happened at Chernobyl, the role of the, of the economic planning, the uh, uh, importance of the political system that existed at that time, in the Soviet Union, how it contributed, 
ecological consequences. Eventually, we don't think about Chernobyl as something that causing the state collapse, but there is a very close relation between Chernobyl and what happens with the disintegration of the Soviet Union later. So the impact of Chernobyl on the fall of the Soviet Union is, in my personal opinion, is much, much more significant than the impact of the Afghan war. And then the question that of international of international consequences of the decisions that are made by nation states or made by individual states and governments. Um, so let's let, let's start with the uh, relationship between military and, and peaceful users of uh, nuclear power. In the countries that I mentioned uh, to you, in, in mostly in the Middle East, and in particular, for example, Iran, the same was true for India. Acquiring uh, the, the nuclear reactors was basically a step, or was imagined as a step toward acquiring nuclear weapons. So that's certainly what happened in India. This is basically more or less the path, I understand, of North Korea, and, and certainly certainly that's, that's the, the path that Iran uh, either, either used to be on or still is on, 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 on that way. Well, in the Soviet Union, like in the United States, the sequence is, is basically reversed. It's different. Nuclear arms come first, and then after that come atoms for peace. So both in the United States and in the Soviet Union. And the reaction to that probably would be, okay, this is, this is a better maybe way of, of if, if there is this sequence, it's better to start maybe with nuclear bombs and then, and then go, go for the peaceful uses. Well, uh, not really. Uh, on this uh, slide, you see, first of all, the, the image of the explosion of the first Soviet atomic bomb. That was August of 1949. And two people who are very much involved in that image, how that happened, and also in Chernobyl. These are the same people. So on the left, there is, uh, <clears throat> at the time of the um, um, Chernobyl disaster, the president of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, Mr. Alexandrov, who was working on the atomic bomb since 1943 in the Soviet Union. So he's really, he left a mark by designing uh, um, reactors for the uh, Soviet nuclear submarines in the 1950s. But he was also the academic uh, director of the project that designed the reactor at Chernobyl that eventually exploded, the so-called uh, RBMK reactor or the multi-channel graphite reactor, the one that was uh, much less secure than the alternative that the Soviets had and most of the Western world has where it's water, water reactors where water is used as a moderator and also used as a cooler. So in the in, uh, Alexandrov reactor that blew up, uh, water was used as a cooler and graphite was used as moderator and again it was, there were major security risks. Uh, the person next to him is uh, Mr. Slavsky, who was the mm, minister uh, of very obscure ministry, which was called of medium machine building. 
Well, medium machine building, that was basically the Soviet atomic industry. And he was working on the nuclear project since 1946. The interesting thing about these two guys was that uh, they both came, uh, for me it was interesting, they both came from Ukraine. But more inter even more interestingly, during the uh, revolution and the civil war, they were fighting on different sides. Alexander was fighting for the whites and Slavsky was fighting for the, for the reds. But eventually they, 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 they became two allies and this guy owned the Institute of uh, Atomic Energy that Alexander was the director of. The money was coming from this ministry. The institute belonged to the ministry, 10,000 people approximately. Slavsky was running an entire empire. Alexandrov, a part of that, was the president of the Academy of Sciences. So it's the minister in charge of the Soviet nuclear program really owned the institute and owned the Academy of Sciences in one way or another. And again, their, their, their roots are in, in, the, in the Soviet atomic project. There is an anecdote that I put into the book. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it certainly very well describes in general the origins of the Soviet, but also of the American, of the American uh, program of producing uh, nuclear energy. So the story goes that by uh, early 60s, Nikita Khrushchev got worried about what was happening in the United States in terms of this atom for peace program. The Soviets were the first who launched the reactor for the production of the nuclear energy in 1954 in Obninsk, but then they were fallen behind. So allegedly, according to that anecdote, Khrushchev calls on Alexandrov and Slavsky and says, okay, guys, we need, we need a new reactor. <clears throat> and they go back uh, to, to, to their offices, think, what, what should we do? And they watch TV. And uh, on TV, there was a best known at that time Soviet stand-up comic, Arkady Raikin, who was telling a joke uh, uh, saying that, okay, what is happening that the, the, the ballerina, she is just circling around and produces this energy and no one uses the energy. One should add to ballerina rotor and then the, the Soviet economy will be, will be doing much better. <laughs> so the, the, the um, <clears throat> anecdote goes that that's where they got the idea to use the reactor that was used for the production of plutonium for bomb for, 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 for the production of, of uh, um, uh, electric power. Again, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but this is basically very, very well actually reflects the, the relationship between the military industrial complex and what is happening there. And eventually they come with this graphite water reactor, which was, it wasn't safe, but it was fantastic in a sense that the cost of producing of it was only half of what was a water-water reactor. The, 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 the uh, capacity of producing electricity was almost twice as big. And it could be put together, it, from, uh, it could be pre-assembled. So parts of it could be shipped from, from uh, different uh, um, uh, from different firms that would do that, and then on, on the place that it could be assembled. So it was cheap. 
they decided also not to build, uh, to build uh, uh, confinement around it, so something that is a standard practice in this country and in the world. So more savings. And that's, that's where basically the, the uh, economic part kicks in and, and um, is, 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 is an important part of, of Chernobyl's story. Chernobyl, once it happened, was very often viewed in Ukraine, um, and it, it served as this kind of a factor that mobilized popular, uh, popular um, uh, first of all, the, the, not exactly the resistance to the regime, but, but the, the popular movement, the Ruch, came out of this uh, ecological, ecological movement. So it was viewed as basically Chernobyl as part of this imperial project, and the, 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 the Moscow puts these reactors close to the cities like Kiev without respect for the, for the population. Well, the, the reality is that it were the Ukrainian authorities that were lobbying for that project since mid-1960s. Because again, they needed the uh, they needed electricity. They needed electricity for the development of the economy, and for them it was also a big thing. It was a prestige thing. Ukraine was joining the nuclear club in a sense through the through the door of the nuclear energy. Again, they didn't think about Ukraine as an independent country, but they thought about their republic, about their region, about their administrative unit, and. That was really very important for them, and that's that's the origins of Chernobyl. By 1977, after numerous delays, they launched the first the first nuclear reactor. The event that was uh, uh, became a major major publicity also event in Ukraine. Leading Ukrainian writers would write poems uh, celebrating celebrating this Ukraine joining joining the the new nuclear age. So, uh, but again, the, the, the main reason for that and why the local authorities were lobbying for that was because, because of this basically adding a new source of energy and contributing to the continuing development, economic development of the region. Well, my book starts at the 27th Party Congress. Uh, it happened that way that the director of the Chernobyl nuclear plant was also a deputy of the Congress. And it happened that way that Gorbachev, when he came to power and before he invented perestroika, or people around him invented perestroika, the, the name of what he was going to do was called uskarenia, so the acceleration. For the acceleration, the idea was that you don't have to restructure the old system. You have to look for resources within the old one. And the resources were found in the, in the nuclear power energy. So the plans for the five-year plan that were adopted at the 27th Party Congress, and it took place in March, uh, it ended in March of 1986, Chernobyl blew up in April of 1986. So a month, month and a half before that happened. So the capacities, in, in, not capacities, but the number of the reactors that were planned for the next five-year plan was double or what it was for the previous five years. And the new minister of the nuclear energy uh, said that he found the way how actually to shorten the time for construction of nuclear power plants by two years. So they were really going, the, the counting on the, on the nuclear energy for this process of uskarenia or acceleration. And uh, um, <clears throat> The, the, um, 
uh, plans were, were of course put from, from Moscow to, to, uh, to, to the republics. In Chernobyl at that time, uh, at, uh, at the beginning of 1986, there were four reactors. So um, the first one was launched and, and, and uh, went operational in 1977. Uh, the, and they were constructing the fifth one. And the plan was on the other side of, of uh, uh, the river, uh, which was called Pripyat, to build five or six more reactors. The, uh, um, the reactors that were already built, their, their uh, um, <coughs> capacity was uh, one million megawatts of production of the electricity. The new ones were 1.4, 1.5 million megawatts, so much bigger. Um, and uh, the, the interesting thing about all of these reactors were that they were launched, or the documents were signed that they could be launched, either on the 30th or 31st of December of each year, 1977, 1979, 1983, the fourth reactor was launched in 1983. What that meant was basically that they were fulfilling the plans. Whether the reactor was ready to go or not ready to go, the papers would be signed because, again, that was in the plan for that particular year. There was also opportunity to get bonuses and so on and so forth. Uh, which brings me to the to the uh, to the theme of the of the authoritarian power and, and the political system that existed in, in the Soviet Union at that time. Again, the the primary goal was this accelerated economic development. But then the, 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 the in instructions that were going there were really in complete disregard to the safety issues. So it was about the plan. It was about the plan, well, you can, you can uh, trans translate that when it comes to the market economy, it's, it's profit. So the, 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 the things that, that, again, it's not something that's absolutely unique for the Soviet Union if you think about that in a different way. And one particular thing that was there also that probably absent in, in certainly in, in Western Europe or in this country is the <coughs> um, situation in which the decisions could be made only at the very top. The uh, American and British diplomats were learned about that hard way when they were participating in discussions with Joseph Stalin at Tehran, at Yalta, that you can negotiate whatever you want with people uh, under Stalin, but it's just one person who makes those decisions. So interestingly, very little change in that sense between 1943, 1945, and 1986. So when the reactor exploded, first of all, for almost 24 hours, for 20 hours, there was no one official there on the spot that would actually take a responsibility to say that the reactor had exploded. So none of them from the director, so they, they were talking about that, they were not using the word. So the diagnosis that the reactor exploded was made at the end of the day on the 26th of April when the deputy Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, Mr. Shirbina, flew from, uh, was recalled from Siberia, flew to Chernobyl, 
had this meeting, he had the right to declare that it exploded. The next question that came to the fore was, okay, the radiation levels are rising. We have five, less than five, maybe two or three miles away, the city of Pripyat, 50,000 people. Children are playing on the streets and so on and so forth. What do we do? Sherbina didn't have authority and didn't have power to make this decision. So they were going through the party ladder all the way up. So at the end, it was the prime minister himself, Nikolai Rushkov, who was woken up in Moscow. And basically, he said that, yes, that's what we are doing. Rushkov was also the one who decided on the 30-kilometer exclusive zone. So which is a very, very interesting and peculiar situation, peculiar looking from the Western perspective, but again, something that is very, very reflective in my, in my opinion, not just of this situation in the Soviet Union, but this, this structures, political structures, authoritarian structures in general. Uh, there were not only uh, bad things about authoritarianism, <laughs> there were also good things good, not entirely good, but at least what, what the regime was able to do once the decision was made, the regime was actually able to mobilize the, the, the resources, human resources, financial resources, economic resources, to deal with the disaster one that happened. And uh, uh, here you see the so-called roof uh, uh, cats. One of the ways to get people to go into these dangerous places was that it was a, a military draft. So people who had expertise in, in dealing with anything related to that were drafted. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Sergei Zhuk is going to, to talk here on Friday. So Sergei Zhuk was in the Chernobyl zone, was drafted. Uh, uh, he, we worked at the same, in the same department at the, at the University of Dnipropetrovsk. Mm -hmm. He was drafted and sent there for two or three months. So uh, that, 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 that is the power of authoritarian regimes and, and how, how it functions with that. Of course, they, 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 they send there more people than actually they needed or that could work there, but that's that. And, and, and those people, many of them are still paying really very high price for being there, being in that, in, in that area. Um, uh, but again, that's, that's what, what comes with, with <coughs> uh, authoritarian regime. Uh, let me now uh, move to, to another topic that I announced at the, 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 the start of my presentation, and that's the question of the safety and generally culture of safety. Um, what you see here are uh, posters for two movies uh, dealing with the issue of nuclear energy contamination and uh, the, the uh, um, nuclear radiation and its impacts on, on, on health in general. So there is the issues of safety. Uh, on the left, this is a... a by, by that time, I guess it was it was a sort of blockbuster, which was called Vivid Nyadnovogoda, uh, uh, nine days of the same of, of one year, and uh, this is roughly based on the on the story of uh, 
the, the father of the Soviet atomic bomb, Akademishin Kurchatov, who apparently was got more radiation that he could handle. He died a relatively young man in 1960. In 1962, you see that uh, uh, movie with uh, uh, people like Alexei Batalov, Smoktunovsky, Stignev, so the, the superstars of the, of, of the Soviet uh, film industry at that time. And the plot is that uh, this uh, particular character played by Alexei Batalov he was a scientist who got a high dosage of, of radiation. Uh, and uh, um, the, the, there is a love triangle, and, and there is a woman that, that he loves, and, and she apparently is marrying someone else. Uh, eventually, he, he neglects it. He, he gets more radiation and more dosage, and, and it, it's known that, that he is dying. So, and, and that woman marries him eventually. So, but uh, the idea is that what he does, he's a hero. What he does is good. That's what you do for your country. That's what you do for, for scientific progress. It's need, it, it, it needs that. So that is, that is basically, this is a positive character. Uh, this is 1979, the China Syndrome. Uh, movie, I don't know whether anyone uh, watched it or not. Uh, also, uh, Michael Douglas, Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon. Very different story. It's about a nuclear plant where Jack Lemmon plays a guy who is a whistleblower. He, he sees how the, um, there is, the, the, the reactor is close to the accident. They use SCRAM, the so-called emergency system of shutting down the reactor. And he gives interview to Jane Fonda. So the hero is of a different kind. He is not going there, not takes this radiation. He is concerned about safety and uh, and, and and makes his concerns known. And this is uh, very again uh, to a degree that that anecdote about uh, Khrushchev and Reichen and others is reflective about the relationship between military and 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 peaceful ways of. of using nuclear energy. These two films are very reflective of attitudes towards safety and, and, uh, the, and nuclear power in general between differences between the Soviet Union and the United States. In the United States, very early on, since the 1950s, the idea that, that basically nuclear power is, is dangerous were already there. And, and they, they were there from the very beginning. Something that you don't see not only in the countries like the Soviet Union, but very interesting research was done comparing American and South Korean attitudes toward, toward nuclear power. And again, they found the same, the same differences in the sense that the issues of safety in the developing countries, they are taking a backseat to the issues of the, of the economic production. So this is something that is not discussed, that is not at the center of, of the public discussion and public debate about nuclear nuclear energy. Well, uh, <clears throat> now, how that translates in what, in, in what happened at Chernobyl. Here you see um, three people who were, uh, altogether there were nine people who were put on trial after, after the accident. This is uh, the director of the, of the plant. Uh, um, his name was Brykhanov. He was the dep uh, mm, uh, 
took part in the 27th Party Congress that I mentioned to you, the chief engineer, Mr. Fanin, and this is, uh, his last name was Jatlov. He is a deputy chief engineer, and he was the guy who was actually running the test. Out of these three people who were key for the running of the, of the plant, only Medyatlov had training as a nuclear engineer and physicist, and he worked on the on the um, um, uh, Soviet uh, nuclear submarines before that. Both uh, Fermin and, and Brukhanov, they actually came from outside of the field. They, they were running before that the uh, electric power stations that, that were using coal. Uh, so that's, that's one very interesting thing, which is basically reflect, uh, this is not just about Chernobyl. There is an explosion in 60s and 70s of uh, these reactors. They just didn't have enough. They lacked trained personnel. Now, the guy who allegedly knew what he was doing, he violated all the, all the rules that were in the books when, when, when he was running this test. So the, the program of the test was suggesting that the, the test could happen place at, at a certain power level of the reactor. They almost lost all the, all the power and then were rebuilding it and started the test at, at three times as low level as they were supposed to do. That. He wrote then uh, memoirs after that where he was defending his position. And his uh, line was that in no instructions, in no textbook, nowhere, there was told that reactors actually can explode. And this is more than just a line of defense of a person who, who is trying, uh, who has this burden of causing to a degree, or being important part of the story which resulted in such, such tragedy and catastrophe. But it's also the reflection of the general belief in the field that everyone believed, including Alexandrov, that reactors don't explode, that they were so safe. Gorbachev, when interviewed, he was saying, well, Alexandrov told us that reactor is like a samovar. You can put it in the middle of the red square. Nothing would happen to that. Uh, so, yes, it is, it is, it is very self-serving what Gatlov is doing, but again, he is doing that because, because it's also reflective of a, certain, of a certain culture that existed there. And this is the case with the generally industry that learned the hard way since 1949 what nuclear explosions are, what radiation is, and so on and so forth. Now imagine a first generation of, of people dealing with nuclear energy somewhere in Egypt or somewhere else. So the, the, the issues of safety, the safety culture, it's, uh, the, the, it's, it's a major, major issue that we're certainly lacking, lacking in Chernobyl, and, and this, is, this is something that, <clears throat> again, a major, major concern. I, I, this is not my invention observation. I'm taking that from the from the um, publications and, and public statements of people who look at what is happening with the nuclear energy, this is, it is a major concern. When it comes to the ecological consequences, again, I, I told you that there were um, uh, 500 Hiroshima-type of bombs. The, the, the situation was also that it's the, the, the Hiroshima-Nagasaki experience 
couldn't be used because again that was all that radiation was released over a significant period of time. Uh, dropping the bombs on the on, on Japan also included the, the, the idea was to get maximum capacity out of that. So the, the, it seems to me it's the, the story with Hiroshima. I'm not sure, but the the, the 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 city is surrounded by hills and mountains. So basically, it's all in in one place, and it, it was different different to compare that to Chernobyl. Uh, it's it's the biggest biggest. Uh, um, technological disaster with major ecological consequences, but we are still struggling trying to figure out what it really meant. In terms of the people who died as part of the explosion, there were only two. In terms of the people who died with a diagnosis of the, of the um, acute radiation syndrome, there were somewhere between 30 and 40. And the rest is gray area. We know more or less for sure that there is a spike in the, in the number of uh, cancer cases, uh, at least 5,000 cancer cases among children are attributed to Chernobyl, thyroid cancer. That that's, that's, is more or less clear. The rest, the rest it's big unknown. The, 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 the medical prof professionals, doctors, researchers, they, they can't agree. In Ukraine, approximately 200,000 people were um, um, put into the category of the sufferers from Chernobyl, so that in one way or another their health was affected by that. There is a wonderful book by Adriana Petrina uh, where she coined that term on the biological citizenship, which made, made uh, again, uh, was very well received uh, in, 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 in academia. So a, a new phenomenon coming out of that. Uh, I don't know whether you saw that map or not, but it's, it's, it's interesting that those both maps are interested in, in their own way. Uh, you, of course, probably heard about 30-kilometer exclusion zone. That's where it is. But then look at this brownish area. That is the area that was really affected more than on the same level as this area within the 30 kilometers. Within the 30 kilometer zone, that's why the tourism is now possible. There are areas that are probably as clean as, 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 the, the, uh, as is, is soil here in, in, uh, in Wisconsin. And on the other hand, you can get major contamination in the faraway places like Greece. For the first time, of course, the, the uh, word was alarmed that something happened was in, in Scandinavia. The half-life of plutonium-239, the, uh, the, the, the compound that is used in the, was used in, the, in one of the first bombs and is used today in the atomic bomb and, and uh, uh, thermonuclear uh, weapons as well. So plutonium-239 half-life is 24,000 years. This is half-life, and half-life is not enough to kind of uh, completely disregard the impact of, of, of that radiation. And it's, uh, so it, it is really, uh, a, 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 if not entirely global phenomenon, but it's certainly all, all, all European phenomenon. In, uh, again, and uh, the, we, we still don't know exactly what, what those consequences are and what they will be 
in the future. Um, <clears throat> One more thing that uh, Chernobyl can, can maybe help thinking about. And that's what I mentioned, major technological disaster and, and the collapse of the state and its ability to build is, is the consequences of that, which is, which is a reality, especially depending on, the, on how the strong the state is, especially when it comes to authoritarian regime. If it collapses, that you can see even a even, uh, bigger problem there. What happens here, relation between Chernobyl and the fall of the Soviet Union, it is not, uh, it, it's not, the Soviet Union is not casualty of Chernobyl by, by any stretch of imagination. So the, the explosion of the reactor didn't, didn't kill the Soviet Union. But it is a very important part of, of the fall of the Soviet Union because the first mass mobilization in the Soviet Union that is happening, it is happening around issues of ecology and around the issues of nuclear power. The Ignalina power uh, uh, plant in, in Lithuania, that's the, the start, that's the mobilization of the Lithuanian uh, national and nationalist movement. That's the start of the Lithuanian popular front, Saudis. In Ukraine, the start of the Ruch, the, the, the Ukrainian equivalent of Saudis, uh, uh, is also around, around mobilization uh, uh, on ecological issues and issues of Chernobyl. So this is if you think about the mass mobilization that is described in book by uh, Mark Bisinger, the first step there is ecological mobilization. There would be no other steps if that would not happen. Why? Because the disaster of Chernobyl made it legitimate in the Soviet Union for citizens to mobilize around the issues of ecology. Because it hit everyone, whether you're a member of the party or not, and again, that was one of the first issues that were allowed in terms of, uh, or at least was in the gray area, that the government resisted but eventually had to give up. Even in Belarus, that's a very little mobilization, but the republic that suffered the most, more than Ukraine and more than Russia, the, the, the mobilization was happening around, uh, around um, issues of ecology, around issues of Chernobyl. Just two, two examples to, to stress you the, 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 the uh, importance of what I said. <clears throat> uh, in Ukrainian parliament, when Ukraine declared its independence on the 24th of August 1991, and eventually that leads to the Ukrainian referendum, and Ukrainian referendum is the last blow to the Soviet Union, it falls apart or is declared to be defunct one week after the Ukrainian referendum. So Ukrainian story is very important. Now, August 24th, 1991, the person who reads the Declaration of Ukrainian Independence to the Ukrainian Parliament is certain Volodymyr Yavorivsky, the head of the Chernobyl Commission created specifically by the Parliament. When you think about who reads the Ukrainian referendum for the, uh, the Ukrainian Declaration of Independence for the first time to the All Union Parliament in Moscow, this is Yuri Sherbak, the creator, the writer like Yavorivsky, the creator and the head of the first non-communist political party and organization in Ukraine, which was called Green World. So the, the, the early ecological activists are, are there in the forefront of this actions that lead for the independence of Ukraine, that lead for the independence of Lithuania, 
And Armenia is another example where there is mobilization around the same things as a result of the earthquake that happened then, Spitak, and so on and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> now, what happens when the disaster and the explosion like the one that took place at Chernobyl happens in the country that falls apart? Well, it's, it's the, the international community that now has to deal with the issues, and Chernobyl is the best example of that. Very interesting looking at the history of Chernobyl and the changes that are happening within the, the um, nationalist movements in general. So remember I told you that Chernobyl was welcomed in Ukraine as this wonderful thing, Ukraine joins the, the nuclear club. After Chernobyl, the same people who glorified that turned completely around. Yavorivsky was one of them. Before Chernobyl, he wrote a novel that celebrated that. After Chernobyl, he becomes the leader of, the, of this uh, ecological, ecological movement. Now, Ukraine becomes independent. Lithuania becomes independent. Guess what? There is a major, in the 1990s, major economic crisis in the region. They need energy. They turn around and they actually rewrite all the laws that they wrote before that, that they were supposed to shut down all nuclear reactors before 1995 because now they need them. So by the year 2000, it's the West that bribes Ukraine to shut down those reactors. Bribes in a way that they're saying, okay, we're losing capacity, we need money to complete the construction of two more reactors. And now this is, this is the French firm that is supposed to complete this new sarcophagus, new, new um, shelter over the damaged reactor in May of 2018. So again, it's a multi-billion project that was funded by G7. Uh, it's it's uh, European, American, Canadian, and Japanese money that, that are there. And that's, that's basically, again, something that is very particular for, for the Soviet history, for, for history of Chernobyl. But that's, that's basically the consequences one, uh, of, of this major technological disasters, because at the end, the regimes that are responsible for them, that were running them, can be gone. But things like plutonium-239 in, in Scandinavia will be there what, in, in some way for uh, 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 48,000 years. <clears throat> uh, now, where does it leave us? Uh, Time-wise, it seems to me we are more or less, more or less okay. Well, um, This is, by the way, the, 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 the image from the former post office in Pripyat, in that, in that town. And it's, you see, of course, the, the scientific progress and, and the first man in, in, in the space. So, so they were really very proud of, of being on, on the forefront of all these scientific, scientific discoveries. Now, of course, it's all, it's all in ruins. It's, it, it's all decaying. Um, one obvious thing out of my story is that as the nuclear world is living North America and, and Western Europe, 
and moves further east and moves to the volatile places like Middle East. And Africa is, of course, is of course the, the other frontier. There is, uh, the, there is um, um, tendency also to think about that in positive ways. And, and there are good reasons to do that. That brings new energy, that creates jobs, that, 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 that helps economy. There is also reason to think about that in positive way in a sense that when we talk about global warming, why Western House filed for bankruptcy, why others are doing for the same reason as the coal uh, companies are doing the same. It's shell gas. Again, shell, shell gas it doesn't contribute as much as, as coal to the to polluting the environment, but it's still polluting. So the nuclear energy seems to be the way, the way, the way out. Instead, that except that sometimes Chernobyl's happen. And uh, uh, the the overall conclusion, if if there can be, and if there can be any recommendations to to the world, to all of us, is that. Uh, the, the, the story of Chernobyl tells us that at the end it will be the international community, it will be the world that will be dealing with these disasters. And it's probably would be only right to, to increase the level of uh, oversight on the part of the international community over this new, new construction. Again, whether they're happening in the U.S., whether, whether they're happening in uh, Western Europe, or whether they're happening in Middle East. Thank you very much for your attention.